Um, Third John is in the back of your Bible. On the Pew Bibles, it's page 963. We're going to read the whole thing. Third John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who, wants to, who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Good morning, church. So this brings us this morning to the end of our sermon series in the letters of John. It's been really sweet to walk through his letters together. Wow, that's loud. Last week, we talked through the letter of 2 John. This week, we'll be in 3 John. We're going to go through a whole book together this morning, or two of the shortest books in the entire New Testament. As is the case with 2 John, John is writing to a church, well, in this case, he's writing to a person, to explain to them how he should treat traveling missionaries who want to sleep over at his house, which has never happened to me, probably hasn't happened to many of you, and likely never will. And so I need to, we need to ask the question again, like, what's the point of this book? How is it relevant to us? And while we're in a, difficult, a different historical context and situation than this book was written in, we're going to find that the same principles and truths that are in this book apply today because they are written by the same God who never changes. So we need this book today because the God who never changed it wrote it, and the truth in this book doesn't change and applies to our situation. In the book of 2 John, the issue is how do we protect the church from false missionaries who are trying to influence it away from Jesus. The book of 3 John is how do we care for and nurture and send well missionaries who are going out to make new disciples of Jesus. Now I want to ask us this morning, how many of you struggle to keep God's glory and his purposes to rescue sinners forefront on your mind throughout the day? 
Is that what you think about all day long? How great God is and his purpose to rescue sinners? Or do the trifling distractions of life get in the way of you focusing on what's most important and what he most wants us to do? Do you struggle to be passionate about God's plan to rescue all kinds of people? Like, is this something that fires up your heart, God's plan to rescue all kinds of people? Or do other concerns and desires crowd out your heart and take your passion away? If so, then we all need this letter together. Our problem is that we're not like Jesus yet, and one of the ways we're not like Jesus yet is just the way we feel about the nations and about God's plan to rescue them. And so we have books like 3 John to feel how we ought to feel. And so we need this book this morning. We need God to address us. And so we, as we walk through it, we're going to break this book down into three points. Point one is live for spiritual children. Point two is live for the nations. And point three is live according to good examples. And if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus and you're not yet a follower of him, we're so glad you're here. And our hope is that as you hear this book, you hear the heart of the God who wrote it and you want to be close to him. You want to follow him. You want to know him and you want to have your sins forgiven. So with that in mind, let's hop into point one, verses one through four, live for spiritual children. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So instead of writing to the whole church, John's writing to one guy named Gaius. He refers to himself as the elder, which is a term that presumably Gaius and the other believers at this church would have recognized. Now Gaius is someone whom John cared for deeply because he writes to him and says, Gaius, whom I love in truth. Part of the reason John probably loves him is because of how faithfully he walked. So there's a controversy at this church. There's people who are coming into this church and teaching something else besides the truth. Gaius is probably a leader who's defending the truth, which is why John is writing to him. And John writes about Gaius that you are walking in the truth. But then personally, John probably has a relationship with Gaius. John maybe was the person who led him to the Lord. John maybe was the person who led him up to maturity in the Lord. Because he says in verse 4, right after he says, I rejoice to hear you are walking in the truth, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Gaius is likely one of John's spiritual children. And when John reflects on that, he says, I have no greater joy than to see my children are walking in the truth. What he shows us is that when we start to follow Jesus, God reorders what brings us joy to put the most important things at the top. 
And what gave John a sense of joy was that someone he led to the Lord or helped grow up in the Lord was still following the Lord. As a Christian, you get joys and passions that you can never have apart from following Jesus. And one of those joys and passions that I long to have and I long for all of us to have is that we would be instrumental in people coming to Jesus and growing up to be like Jesus. Like, we obviously are a family, a church family that loves to have biological kids. Like, we're killing it there. And part of the reason it's so wonderful is because you participate in creating and sustaining another life besides yourself. It's like a miracle. And when you have a biological child, that child lives for 70 or 80 years, and that's a glorious thing. But far better when you have a spiritual child who lives forever and can do the same thing for other people. So let's be passionate about having kids and even more passionate about having spiritual kids. And may we live for our natural kids to become our spiritual children as well, not treating them as second class, but the first disciples that we aim to make. This is John's passion. No greater joy than to see that his children are walking in the truth. Like any parent, he's worried that something harmful would happen to his children. The most harmful thing that can happen to any of us is not that we get hurt or killed, but that our faith gets destroyed. And that's what he's worried about here, that Gaius, who's facing these false teachers, might no longer be walking in the truth. And yet he hears that my child is safe. He's walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this. And might we have that same mindset of caring less for our own selves and more for the safety and well-being of those whom God uses to raise up in the Lord. May God turn us into a church of spiritual parents who have generations of spiritual offspring following Jesus. We're not there yet, but we're moving in that direction as we baptize more people, having generations of spiritual children following God. Now, point one, live for spiritual children, is going to connect with point two, which is live for the nations. A desire to see God's family grow is necessarily going to lead you to care about all kinds of people in all kinds of places. If you care about having spiritual offspring, about other people knowing the Lord, naturally you're going to start caring about all kinds of people in all kinds of places, especially the places where they have never heard of Jesus or have little access to the gospel. So that's why I think John goes here next. He introduces his main purpose now in verse 5. And it's not entirely different from what he wrote about in verse 4. It's an expansion of it. He's making it bigger. He wants God's family to include every kind of person, our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers, and people from cultures far away. That's what inspires now these next words that he writes. Let's listen to verses 5 and 6. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So here is where John makes specific 
why he's praising Gaius. Like, why is he so excited about the life of Gaius? What is it that John wants to commend and affirm? Answer, he supplies the needs of missionaries. It is a faithful thing you do in your efforts for these brothers. And according to verse 7, those brothers are those who have gone out for the sake of the name. John commends Gaius for supporting missionaries, for showing them hospitality. Now, there were no hotels or inns that you could stay at back in the ancient Roman world. Nothing like we have today. And the stuff they did have, from what I read about it, you would not want to stay there. You'd rather sleep on the street. And so the Christian message advancing from the known Christian world to people who have never heard of Jesus yet would depend on hospitality of Christians showing care for missionaries as they traveled through their towns and went to unreached places. Now, it's sweet when we show hospitality to other Christians. It's a really good thing. But something deeper is being commended here than that. Specifically, what's being commended is supporting missionaries economically and emotionally. What Gaius is doing is he's supporting missionaries economically and emotionally. So the example he sets and the example that John commends in this letter is that faithful Christians provide emotional and economic support to those bringing the gospel to the nations. That's a good example to to follow in your life. Bringing economic and emotional support to those bringing the gospel to the nations. He says that Gaius served them even though they were strangers, which highlights Gaius' love and support for them. Right? He didn't share a relationship with them. He didn't know them well. What he shared with them was a God in common who was worthy of being known, and so he did everything he could to support them and to send them on their way. John even writes, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, it's not the worthiness of the missionary that John is writing about. It's the worthiness of the God they represent. So church, to the degree that we think our God is worthy, we will send missionaries well. If we believe he's worthy to be worshipped by all the nations in the world, we will send people with that same degree of drive and passion. If that's the way that the gospel gets to places who have never heard and there's someone willing to go there, that becomes priority number one for this community. Send them in a manner worthy of God, the God we are serving together, and the message missionaries are bringing determine the level of importance we place on their journey and how enthusiastically we support them. If we're passionate about God, we become passionate about sending people, even our people, to the nations. Now John's going to get even deeper now in verse chapter, se- in chapter 7 about why. Why this is a big deal. He says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Now why does a missionary leave What's safe 
what's familiar and comfortable for what's unsafe, uncomfortable, and unfamiliar? Answer, they go out for the sake of the name. The name here is John's way of referring to Jesus. In 1 John, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Jesus, that you may know you have eternal life. Name is his summary statement that points to Jesus. Now, why does he use that phrase, name? Why does he refer to the name? Because someone who has a big name has a big reputation or a lot of fame. What he's talking about is someone who believes that the name of Jesus is so worthwhile to be worshipped that they'll leave everything and everyone they know so that more people will worship that name. It's a high view of that name. Now we know, right, all of us know that it's futile to seek our own reputation and fame. All of us have tried it, and all of us have come up short, and the reason why is that none of us are worthy of that kind of fame or reputation. If you try to seek it for yourself, you'll find yourself doing something that's futile, because even if people did focus on you, it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't, you are not the person who can meet their deepest needs. You're not the person who's worthy of the attention of the whole world. According to this passage, there is someone who's worthy of the attention of the whole world. Someone who's worthy to be worshipped by every kind of person who there ever was. And when you grasp that, you want more than anything for his name to be elevated and you start to live for that. You take a turn away from living for your own fame and reputation and you start to live for his fame and reputation. And when you live for his fame and reputation, you spend your life asking God, do I need to go to people who have never heard of you? And in the meantime, you ask, Lord, how can I supply the needs of those who are going to people who have never heard of you so that all the world can hear? At the end of the day, what this passage is aiming at is not just the head acknowledgement of God's greatness and worthiness. This passage is aiming at a blazing heart of passion for his name and glory. Do you have a blazing heart of passion for his name and glory yet? I'm trying to cultivate one because when I asked those questions at the beginning, is this all I think about? The answer is no. I need to grow in this. I need to grow in having a blazing heart of passion for God because he's worthy of it. Now, some of the boldest and most courageous missionaries who have ever lived lived in the 1700s. Some of the, some, a group of these missionaries is called the Moravian Movement or the Moravian Brotherhood. John Dober and David Nietzschean were part of this movement back in the 1700s. Back then, there were islands in the Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico called the West Indies. That's what they called them back then. And there were slaves who were on these islands in the West Indies. And they had an owner who was an atheist, and so they didn't have any way of hearing about the gospel of Jesus. And these two men 
David and John had a conviction that they were supposed to go to these islands to tell them about Jesus, and they tried to do everything they could to get there. Everything they could try. Every door was shut, and they could, there was no way that they could get to this island of slaves to tell them about Jesus. And what they did is unbelievable, except for it actually happened, which is that they decided to sell themselves into slavery so that they could board a slave ship and go live among these slaves so that they could know about Jesus. And as they were sailing away, their friends and family were on the shore watching them leave, and one of them is said, called out back to shore, the Lamb of God is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. The Lamb of God is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. Now, I hope that none of us have to imitate those heartbreaking circumstances. I really do. But I want all of us to imitate that blazing heart of passion for God. They set an example for us about what it looks like to be passionate about the name of God being recognized in worship everywhere. And may we, in that sense, be like the Moravians. May we be like these two brothers who gave everything so that others could know about who Jesus is and what he has done. Now let's, as a church, as a church, we want to aim at this exact same target. Like as a church community, we want the glory of God to be the target we're aimed at. If we're like a big bow and arrow, we're like an arrow, right? And we're aiming somewhere. We want it to be right at the target of the bullseye of the glory of God globally spread. Which is why we've made our vision statement our vision is to glorify God by multiplying worshipers of Jesus and healthy churches in the Twin Cities and beyond. Do you hear that little word at the end, beyond? It's a little word, but it's got a big meaning. So we want to live for God's glory locally here by making all kinds of disciples, by living passionately for others to know Jesus. But we don't stop here. We don't stop here because God deserves global glory, we want to start living for his global glory, which means we don't only want to make disciples here, we want to make disciples at the ends of the earth, which means that we need to send our people to places who have never heard, to people who don't yet believe and follow Jesus. Now let's talk more about to whom they were sent. Right, verse 7 says, they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Isn't that a, kind of a confusing phrase at first? Like, why, why, John, are you excited that they're accepting nothing from the Gentiles? First of all, what even is a Gentile? I've never met someone and thought, that's a Gentile. Right, so a Gentile is a word that in the Old Testament, it referred to those who were outside of the Jewish community. So the Jewish community was a family of faith in the Old Testament. A Gentile was someone who was outside of that community. In the New Testament, after Jesus comes, a Gentile is someone who is out of the community of the church, which is the international, multi-ethnic community of faith that worships Jesus. And if anyone's outside of the international, multi-ethnic community of faith that worships Jesus, they're a Gentile until they're brought in. And that's the goal of the church, is to bring everyone in. 
Now, I think that this word would be better be translated nations than Gentiles. Gentiles are an old English word that refers to this. It's from yesteryear when the Bible is translated and is carried over through tradition. I think a better word would be nations. We all know the Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And this word here translated Gentiles is very similar to that word nations. And the reason why I think it's good for this word to be translated nations is that it brings us back to the beginning into the story of the Bible and the origin of the nations. Right? In the story of the Bible, the origin of the nations is the Tower of Babel. We preached about it, what, a few months ago? I hope, I hope we remember it. And it's this story of where human beings united to build this source of life for themselves, this tower in the city in opposition to God and apart from God as if they didn't need God at all. And God righteously responds in judgment and confuses their language and confuses their cultures and disperses them through the face of the whole world. If you've ever wondered why there's so many different kinds of people and types of people and types of nations in the world today, this is why. Now, every kind of culture and language and ethnicity and language, they're all beautiful and unique in their own way. However, the fact that we have different cultures and have different language is a greater degree of separation from one another and from the gospel. As a result today, it is harder to get the gospel to all the different ethnic and language groups in the world. There are currently about 17,000 distinct cultural and language groups in the world. And about half of them have no access to the gospel. So about 40% of the world's population right now is living in a culture without a meaningful church presence who can tell them about Jesus. How sad it is that our neighbors on this block, many whom don't know Jesus, but at least they can hear the gospel. At least there's a church they can come to. At least we can go knock on their doors and tell them about Jesus. And yet this morning as I speak, there are thousands and thousands of people groups who are living and dying without ever hearing the name of Jesus as long as they live. This is the great tragedy of our time. There are so many sad things in the world. Yet nothing is sadder than the approximately 7,000 language groups of people who just have never heard the gospel and don't have a chance to. And my hope and our hope is that this church community would not rest until that's corrected. We must not rest until that great imbalance and that great problem is corrected. Which is why we must pray and we must send and we must go to those peoples. Thank God that as we continue in the story of the Bible, we learn that God's heart blazes for the nations. Right? This isn't a storyline in the Bible. This is the storyline in the Bible. After God disperses the nations at Babel, the very next story, the very next story, he calls Abram. He calls Abram out of Chaldea, which is a land of Babylon. He calls a man out of Babylon and makes him promises and says that he's going to turn him into a tool of international blessing for all the nations. What's God's response to the death and dispersion after Babel? He comes up with a rescue plan to rescue every kind of person. That's who he is. 
And that's the kind of people he's calling us to be. At first, there was a nation of Israel who was supposed to be this instrument of rescue for the nations, and it failed. It did not succeed because the nation of Israel was disobedient. But then one who was obedient came. His name is Jesus Christ, and he succeeded. Right? John writes in 1 John that Jesus has given his life as a sacrifice, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know a man who lived and died and rose again, so literally anyone from any place who calls on his name can be saved. That is amazing. It's absolutely amazing. You know the message, and you know the person who can save anyone from any background in any place forever. It's astounding that we have that, that opportunity and we get to participate in the great work of making him known in more places. The only reason any one of us knows Jesus at all is because of a missionary. Did you know that I think most, if not all of us in this room, would have never heard of the name of Jesus, would have never heard of the Bible, would have never heard of the gospel, would be living in our sin, destined for hell, if someone did not take it upon themselves to cross a culture and tell people we knew or our ancestors about Jesus. That's the reason why we're Christians. And then God wants to use us to do that for other people. Now it says, John writes, that they were supposed to go to the Gentiles accepting nothing from them. Why? Why are they supposed to accept nothing from these nations that they go to? And I think the reason is that they weren't supposed to communicate their message in a confusing way. They weren't supposed to go to these nations with a message of abundant life and then be begging for food and water. No, they were supposed to go in a way where they were well supplied so that they could focus on effectively spreading the good news of Jesus to people. So then John says in verse 8, Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So it's been famously said before, either go, send, or disobey. Those are our three options this morning. All of us should pray, Lord, do you want me to go? And in the meantime, we should live as if we're sent here and tell everyone we come across. And also, we should join in the quest for God's global glory by sending those among us who will go. If we haven't gone, the way we support is to pray, to give, and to emotionally connect with people who are going. We become fellow workers and mission, with missionaries we support when we send them out in a manner worthy of God. We're supporting four different families. We're supporting Beth Lane. And we want to grow that, as we're going to hear earlier this, later this morning, into more families and more people that we want to support who are leaving everything behind that they know and love for the sake of the name. Now, what John transitions to next is going to feel like another subject matter, 
but it is also very relevant to what we've been talking about this morning. So rather than diving into it and interpreting it all, we're going to more apply it to the discussion and the message that we've been having so far. He writes in verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, taking, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So John's main point in this message is imitate good examples, don't imitate bad examples. Bad example, Diotrephes. He likes to put himself first. His heart is the exact opposite of living for the sake of the name. As a result, he opposes those who live for the sake of the name. Did you hear that? He's trying to stop the missionary movement. He's a bad example. Don't be like him. On the other hand, Demetrius is a good example. And we don't hear why he's a good example, but apparently the people who received this letter knew Demetrius, and they would have known to look to him as an example for how we ought to live and follow Jesus. And thankfully, church, we have no shortage of good examples among us of what it looks like to be globally minded and having our hearts set on, God, set on God's purpose for the nations. We have good examples among this church that we can look at. We have the Schmitz family. We have the Wilsons, we have Christy Taylor, we have Beth Lane, and we have a number of students who have studied at the Bethany School of Global Missions. All these people have a heart for the nations, and we can learn from them. We can grow from them, from their good example of caring more about God's global purposes than caring about our own trivial lives. There's also plentiful examples in history of unbelievable people who have sacrificed everything for God, who is good for us to learn from. And you heard me mention the Moravian brothers earlier and the good example that they set for us today. There's also missionaries like William Carey, David Brainerd, Amy Carmichael, and other heroes of the faith who have shown us the way. And there are biographies about them. And so if this morning this feels like a new topic to you, or you feel, struggle like me to have your heart stoked for this topic, to keep your heart hot for this topic, a way to connect your heart to God's global purposes is to read about people who have connected their hearts to God's global purposes. And so if you feel like you fall, you're falling short this morning, if you feel like your heart's not there yet, the right answer is not to despair, but to grow together. And so if you want to read one of these biographies with me, let me know. Let's get a group together. Let's read about global missions, and let's care about it like God does. So please text me, call me, reach out to me, whatever. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus yet, we want to invite you to know Jesus. He's the first missionary and the greatest missionary. He didn't cross national boundaries or cultural boundaries. He crossed worlds to come here. And he came here to give a sufficient sacrifice to forgive the sins of anyone in any place from any background who calls on his name. The reason why he crossed worlds was so that you could call on his name this morning and come to him. 
So don't leave here without following the greatest missionary who crossed worlds to rescue anyone and everyone who calls on his name. Literally, the greatest treasure is offered to you this morning, so please accept it. Please accept it and come to him. Talk to me, talk to anyone in our church if you want to take steps forward or have any questions. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this book. Thank you, Father, for revealing how worthy the name of Jesus is. Help us to respond rightly to Jesus and his worthiness in how we live and how we worship and how we spend our lives and in how we seek you right now in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen.